Welcome to Unedited. So um, before I talk about what I watched, I want to talk about what I've been listening to. Um, as you know, if, if you listen to other episodes of the podcast, uh, I've been listening to a lot of audio dramas uh, during this period when I have to work from home. And um, I'm kind of by myself working in my room. Um, it's kind of given me an opportunity to to listen to a lot of audio dramas and in particular it's kind of given me a chance to catch up on some audiobooks and audio dramas that I've been interested to listen to for a long time and um, in particular like the Doctor Who Big Finish audio dramas um, so just today I finished listening to Doctor Who Spare Parts um, if you don't know what Spare Parts story is, uh, it's basically the the origin story of the original Mondasian Cybermen. So we never actually saw the origin of the Cybermen on their planet. Um, we did see an alternate Earth. Cyberman origin story that Russell T. Davis did with the Tenth Doctor. Um, those were different Cybermen, um, and those are the ones that have been on screen for the newer series that's been going since 2005. So Stephen Moffat also did a Cyberman origin story, which uh, is with the Twelfth Doctor, and that takes place on. Uh, spaceship that's falling into a black hole. The emergence of the Cybermen there is running kind of parallel to the emergence of the Cybermen in this audio drama in Spare Parts um, and whatever other planets it's happening on. Um, the audio drama has the, the fifth Doctor encountering the Cybermen but um, unlike Russell T. Davis's story, the the kind of emergence of the Cyberman here is is happening very slowly. It's already uh, Mondas is already a frozen planet uh, with, with a very small dying population. People are getting cybernetic implants to survive, and they're already kind of living below the surface of the Earth. The writer of the story here was called uh, Mark Platt and actually he was given a story credit or uh, some kind of credit from Russell T. Davis when he did his Cyberman origin story with the Tenth Doctor um, which is those episodes were called The Rise of the Cyberman and The Age of Steel and the Stephen Moffat episodes of his Cyberman origin stories were World Enough and Time and The Doctor Falls with the Twelfth Doctor. So yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of a story worth checking out because we never really saw um, an origin story for the Mondasian Cybermen on their homeworld. So um, I, I like the story with the fifth doctor. Um, apparently, there was an unproduced 
story for the fifth doctor encountering the Cybermen on Mondas, and it was going to be like a Genesis of the Cybermen episode, but the producers at the time weren't interested in the story, which is a real shame. But um, we've had a lot of origin stories of the Cybermen since then. So, yeah, if, if you're interested in Cybermen, in particular, the very early versions that talk like this. Don't you want to be a Cyberman? Um, yeah, check it out. Also, I listened to Doctor Who, the all-consuming fire, which is the seventh Doctor in encountering Sherlock Holmes. And they have to solve a, a mystery throughout space and time. Uh, it's, it's a fun story. Always interested to see Doctor Who interact with Sherlock Holmes. Um, unfortunately, I thought with this audio drama, there wasn't enough of an interaction between the two characters. I kind of wanted more. And also, I was kind of feeling that the, the seventh Doctor had a little bit of an upper hand on Sherlock Holmes. Um, I always have a sense that the two are on a little bit more equal footing. Um, we, during the time when Matt Smith was the 11th Doctor, there was always kind of hope or talks of perhaps a crossover with um, Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock. Um, maybe something like in like a children in need charity special or like like a five minute or ten minute special which would would have been cool <sighs> but unfortunately that never happens so um if you're interested to listen to the doctor uh meet sherlock holmes check out doctor who the all-consuming fire it's actually an audio drama of a novel so the original story is a novel it came out first and then they turned it into an audio drama a few years later uh, speaking of novels i listened to the audio drama of rose and which was written by russell t davis um i also had listened a few months ago to um doctor who the day of the doctor which was by stephen moffat and that was a lot more interesting because it, it's kind of expanded uh, a lot more um, compared to the TV series and I think um, Stephen Moffat had, had a little bit more fun with the story but here with Doctor Who Rose it pretty much follows um, what we see in the episode so I don't think there's that much new in it um there's a little bit more um expansion with roses and mickey's characters it's very much a story about rose um but i didn't really feel it, it added anything to the tv episode of rose which was the, the first episode of the new series when it came back in 2005 
Okay, last one I'm going to talk about. I, I won't annoy you anymore if you're not interested in Doctor Who audios. Okay, last two. Um, because they involve same actor. So, first one is Doctor Who. The Doctor Who Out of Time. Um, and that is with David Tennant. Tent Doctor meeting Tom Baker's Fourth Doctor. Which was a lot of fun. I really, 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 really enjoyed that episode. It's probably one of my favorite audio dramas from the Doctor Who series. Um, in part because it felt like it had a little bit higher production value. Um, the, the music very felt very grand, um, very reminiscent of the TV series. Maybe it was taken from the TV series. Um, but it, it just felt like I was watching, well, I wasn't watching, but I was, it's, it was the next best thing to David Tennant coming back as the 10th Doctor. Uh, even though maybe he's not my favorite Doctor, he is, I think, one of the best Doctors. Um, he just falls into the role so naturally. And it was my first time to listen to David Tennant do an audio for Big Finish. I know he's done um, previous audios with Catherine Tate, but it is my first time to, to hear him as the doctor in the audio. And he's, he's amazing. It's like he never left the role. It's like he, he just finished filming Doctor Who yesterday and then he decided to record this and he just has the character down to a path. And it's per perfect. And then again, Tom Baker is fantastic as well. And he really does sound like the Ford Doctor, which is great. Um, and I love the interaction between the, the two of them. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It's an interesting story. The, the, Daleks, the Daleks are in it as well. Um, it's about an hour long. Uh, I think next year and the year after he's also doing that uh, David Tennant is also doing with other doctors I think with the fifth doctor and the seventh doctor and I think it's it's like one a year he's doing those but he's also coming back for other audio dramas he'll be back for the River Song audio drama and um, the Time Lord Victorious project uh, last one I'm talking about. Tom Baker is also in Doctor Who Stranded. He's in one episode of Doctor Who Stranded. Um, Doctor Who Stranded is the Eight Doctor audio series. Uh, the Eight Doctor returns to Earth, but his TARDIS is damaged, so he's stuck on Earth and he has no technology and he has to kind of deal with the reality of our lives of our problems uh, so it's a very drama based type of uh, serial i don't think it's going to appeal to everyone but it is an interesting experiment that it doesn't involve aliens or aliens invasion or time travel and uh, it's very much about the characters and the companions this time uh, tom baker is in one episode I mentioned in the out of time audio, he sounds like the fourth doctor. 
and he sounds quite quite young as young as he was when he was the fourth doctor and here he's playing the curator which we saw in the day of the doctor and when he returns as a possible future doctor uh, again he he sounds like he did in the day of the doctor he sounds like an, an older man an, an older doctor um, but he's, he was excellent in, in both audio dramas so if you like Tom Baker check out that out of all of them I definitely recommend uh, Doctor Who out of time and if you're dipping your toes into these audio dramas for the first time um, I think that's a very easy one to slip into and um, follow There's, you don't really have to follow the continuity of previous audio dramas it's just a fun episode of two popular doctors meeting so yeah like i said i uh, i know you're not all, not everyone is interested in audio dramas but um it's how i spent a lot of my time in this current climate where we cannot always go to our workplace and we cannot um, go outside as much or live as life as normally as before um, and with audio dramas they're, they're so easily produced and made um, the audio drama I talked about the oh I keep forgetting the name the out of time uh, was recorded in lockdown so David Tennant and Tom Baker recorded that drama from their homes but um, listening to it you wouldn't notice it it sounds like like they were just standing next to each other and it seems to be like a lot of more audio dramas being produced by Big Finish and I guess that's the way to go because people can just record those audio dramas from home um, in this climate where it there's kind of the social distancing and people have to be tested and they can't stand close to each other and how, how are you going to do that for the foreseeable future at least for the next few months or if not a year or more um, it's difficult so it seems perhaps animation audios are kind of the safe bet in this climate the ones that are most easily produced um, okay besides audio dramas I did watch a new movie I watched the old guard with Charlie's Theron um, it's a Netflix made movie I think it's based on comics quite good movie not amazing but yeah it's it's entertaining it's not a movie that feels like it's something on a large scale but it is um, expensive enough it does feel like a movie that's set up for future sequels um, I won't say any more than that I, I won't spoil the movie basically it's a group of people who cannot die and they've lived for hundreds of years in some cases they've lived for thousands of years um, they 
group that stick together because when they are apart they kind of dream of each other and they kind of have a an urge or a sense to seek each other out they can sense um, when one of them is born or when one of them comes back to life for the first time and they are a group of people who try to change the world for a better for the better and because they've lived for hundreds of years or thousands of years they've acquired a lot of skills whether it be fighting or knowledge and they use that skill mainly fighting skill and their particular favorite weapon to bring about justice or help those in need or make some changes to the current political climate and very actually nervy but um, it's fun so um, yeah check that out on Netflix the old guard uh, I said last time that I had been rewatching Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and Bogus journey and I also rewatched Wayne's world and Wayne's world 2 I definitely enjoyed Bill and Ted more than, than Wayne's world because you know Bill and Ted have a little bit more of the story uh, I think Wayne's World is more kind of set pieces, more like jokes, and the story is built around those jokes. Uh, and then the kind of Wayne's World 2 has the same story structure. Apparently, there was a different script um, that Mike Myers had written based off some other movie he had watched. And then when they found out he didn't actually have the rights to that story, they they threatened to fire him unless he wrote a new script and I think they were pulling down sets for whatever story they were planning to do I also watched I rewatched Austin Powers um, which I haven't seen for a long time and I think I enjoyed the first one more on my rewatch um, than I expected to. I think the concept of it is really interesting because it, you're basically taking a James Bond and a, a villain from the 60s and taking them to the future. Even if it's not a comedy, it's, a, it's kind of a fun and interesting concept. How would those characters deal with the future? So it's kind of, it's a clever idea. Uh, second movie kind of hits the same beats again with, with the jokes it's kind of the same jokes again but they they tried to reverse it by sending the characters back to the 60s but I, I do think Austin Powers character is a, a clever creation by Mike Myers I, I like how he blends James Bond and the Beatles and the Avengers into the character and the kind of um, fun references he makes to those movies there's some jokes and humor in there that probably wouldn't hold up today and even yeah things like uh, references to current political events in 1997 um, 
don't age well uh, in this current year of 2020. Uh, it's a shame that he hasn't been making more movies, whether they be Austin Powers or another character. I know he made the, the Love Guru. I never watched the Love Guru, but it seems he hasn't really um, been in the limelight since those Austin Power movies. Um, maybe he'll come back one day, and if he doesn't, he will still have that has that legacy. Um, you know, it's it's up to him. He is he doesn't need to create another character or yeah, make another Austin Powers movie. I, I think he's already made his mark. If he comes back with something new or another sequel, that would be great. But um, yeah, that's uh, what I rewatched. Interesting in the news recently, I saw an interview with Daisy Ridley in which she said that uh, the original plan for Ray's parentage was that she was connected to Obi Wan. Um, it doesn't go into any more detail other than she was told this during The Force Awakens. Um, just based on that, I would guess she was granddaughter and that. Uh, she was linked to Obi-Wan who possibly had a relationship with Satine who was a Mandalorian character in the Clone Wars animation um, in one way I can see it because uh, it, there's like a scene in the movie where Rey touches the lightsaber and she has kind of uh, flashbacks to fighting Vader and Kylo Ren and at the last point she hears the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi and both Alec Guinness and Ewan McGregor saying these are your first steps and those are the last words she hears before she comes out of her um, hallucination or flashback or vision so possibly they were setting up seeds for that in the first movie. Um, I, I don't know if that works with audiences like mainstream audiences would be confused by that and how do you explain that in the movie? Um, and also because based on the prequel movies like Jedi cannot love or have a relationship. Of course, Anakin is the exception, but um, other Jedi were hopefully more well behaved than Anakin, especially Obi Wan Kenobi. And there was like nothing in the prequels that implied he had ever done anything like that. He was more of a straight-headed, follow-the-rules type of Jedi, which we saw from the Phantom Menace. He was kind of like that. Um, but maybe if you want to kind of work it into the story, you can say he's quite understanding 
talks to Padme about who her, who's the father, and he kind of is already aware that it's Anakin. He he doesn't really flip out or get angry, and I think surely he has some idea that they're having a relationship, but he kind of um, lets it go. So possibly you could say that because he had a relationship and possibly he had a child or maybe he didn't know he had a child as well but that was interesting um, I guess it wouldn't have been cousin or distant relative I guess it would have been more direct like grandchild uh, my own personal opinion was that Ray was a Skywalker by blood and I'm just going by the scene where she pulls the lightsaber from the snow and then Luke's theme is playing the same theme that plays when Luke is looking off to the twin sunset so I thought oh that's a strong hint that she's related to Luke of course all that went out the window when it came to the last Jedi and Ryan Johnson wanted to go in a different direction and he wanted to make her a nobody um, which you know it's his vision or it's his movie um, but the way J.J. Abrams set it up it's in his first movie he was that it's the mystery box who where is Ray from who are her parents who is she linked to so there's a there's a definite set up in the whole first movie that she is linked uh, probably to one of the legendary characters that we've already seen and then of course by the rise of Skywalker uh, spoilers uh, we find out that she's a Palpatine um, which is different unexpected um, I don't know I, I don't really think the Obi-Wan connection is that good of an idea or that interesting to me um, again because like I said we never saw Obi-Wan have a relationship in the movies just brings a lot of baggage with it and you feel you might have to explain it unlike Palpatine where you can kind of just brush it aside okay he's a bad guy he had a family that we didn't know about um, personally I still like that she was connected to Luke Skywalker that was just my opinion um, the thing is just it's strange that for such a large franchise that they went in such zigzag direction like I said why didn't JJ Abrams or Ryan Johnson talk to each other and even at the end of the Force Awakens originally when they find Luke on the island he's supposed to be surrounded by floating fl <clears throat> excuse me floating boulders 
because he's still connected to the Force and he's kind of meditating. But then in The Last Jedi, he's not connected to the Force. So actually Mark Hamill had to point out that at the end of The Force Awakens, you have these floating CGI boulders, but in The Last Jedi, Luke is not connected to the Force. So they had to take that out and then they just have Luke standing by himself. Uh, I just found it weird that there was such a lack of communication between directors and writers in the first and second film and, and that, that that was allowed. Uh, I know there's a lot of debate among, among fan, fans, but um, I think the real problem is, you know, they didn't talk about it, they didn't plan it, you know, pick one vision. One other thing, I, if this is from the first movie, the idea that Obi-Wan is linked to Rey, um, possibly that idea is from George Lucas's original episode 7 script or story outline for the sequel trilogy. Um, it would be interesting to know more. I don't know if we will. They really need to have a making of episode 7 book or a, a sequel trilogy book but not like sugar-coated it has to be tell-all and all the different directions and um, differences that the movie makers had so last time I recommended the movie Thundering Mantis, and it's also known as Mantis Fist Fighter. Uh, it's a 1980 Hong Kong movie, uh, martial arts kung fu movie, and directed by Teddy Yip. Um, why I recommended this movie is that I I watch a lot of martial arts movies, and um, in particular a lot of um, older Kung Fu movies. Um, often um, the endings are quite sudden in, in most Kung Fu movies. Um, usually the hero and the villain die at the same time as they kill each other and uh, the, the hero wins but it's a, a Pyrrhic so you, even though like the movie ends like that, and I've seen quite a lot of kung fu movies that have ended that way, it's still kind of shocking and surprising to see each time because you you're kind of thinking, well, is that it really? You know, the villain gets killed with the with the hero's last breath, or they kill each other at the same time, and that's it, and it just says the end. And that's the end of the movie. Um, there's no final like, character moment, um, like in some other kung fu movies, maybe like in Jackie Chan kung fu movie, there might be some um, comedic moment at the end. And, and of course, his character usually will survive. Um, but yeah, you would see in a lot of Shaw Brothers 
movies, that type of ending, or a Golden Harvest movies, that type of ending. Um, so why why I recommend Thundering Mantis is probably the most shocking uh, ending to a Kung Fu movie I've seen. Um, why it's called Thundering Mantis is because the martial artist in the movie studies uh, mantis boxing, mantis kung fu, which is based, of course, on the mantis. So you can see the, the fist style and the movements um, were inspired by the mantis. I actually do a little bit of mantis boxing also. So um, that kind of pointed me in the, in, in the direction of this movie, but I was not expecting this kind of end. So if you haven't seen it, this is a big spoiler. And um, yeah, if, if you're planning to watch it, don't listen any further. So what? Yeah, it actually it is a good kung fu movie. Um, so not just based on the ending, but um, the movie overall is quite good. Um, good action scene, good fight choreography. Um, it's very impressive. Um, but the most shocking thing is the ending, because um, the character is, is using Mantis Kung Fu to defeat the villain, um, but he's not completely over overpowering the villain. Um, it gets to the point where the Mantis Kung Fu style kind of takes over his mind, takes over his mentality, and he's mentally becoming Mantis. And then, of course, he's going crazy and he, he defeats the villain. But, um, yeah, the, the final scene is he's actually him still thinking that he really is a Mantis eating the villain that he's just killed. And that's the end. And it's a it's a, it's a crazy ending. Because the movie starts off as a, as a comedy. Um, tonally it's a bit everywhere in, in some ways um, but I think that's part of what makes it so brilliant because you definitely don't expect such a tonal shift and it does happen towards the end um, the, the main character one of his friends is killed and that kind of drives him crazy um, with anger and that's what kind of leads him to uh, becoming a mantis like that and eating the villain um, but you definitely don't expect it going in that direction especially when it's it starts off as a bit lighthearted um, so yeah of all the kung fu movies I've watched that has to be the craziest one so uh, check that out okay and just to wrap things up um, recommendation for next time probably one a lot of you have already seen um, it's Pat Labor the movie that's Pat, La Pat Labor the movie it's a Japanese animation uh, made in 1989 which I'm kind of surprised by um, it, it doesn't look like a Japanese animated movie from 1989 uh, it looks something more like mid to late 90s and it's directed by Mamoru Oshii, who is 
probably best known for his Ghost in the Shell animated movie. So check that out, and we will talk about it a little bit more next time. And take care, stay safe. <laughs>